you know, like in, in our Cree culture, we have a prophecy, uh, you know, the prophecy of the seventh generation. You know, the Ojibwe's call it the prophecy of the seventh fire. It talks about a time when, when young people would, would be born and they would be free from the, the colonial mindset. Paulo Freite called it the mentality of the oppressed. They would hit a fork in the road, right? And, and one pathway would be like, you know, extraction, destruction, uncontrolled climate change, never-ending war, scorched earth. And then the other one would be like permaculture, intensive, you know, farming and basic, you know, guaranteed income and housing is a right, you know, just like good, good life, right? Uh, what I often say is like, you know, basically Mad Max or Star Trek. <laughs> My name is Kelly Cornett, and I'm the host of Take Me to Your Future, a podcast that seeks to counterbalance conventional ideas about the futures with those envisioned by real people. On today's episode, our first actually, I'm joined by Clayton Thomas Mueller, a member of the Treaty 6-based Matthias Colomb Cree Nation, also known as Pukatawagan, located in northern Manitoba in the place currently known as Canada. Clayton is based in Winnipeg and is known for his prominent roles as a campaigner, film director, media producer, organizer, facilitator, public speaker, and author on Indigenous rights and environmental and economic justice. He's currently a senior campaign specialist with 350.org and is involved in many initiatives to support the building of an inclusive global movement for energy and climate justice. When thinking about how to tee up a conversation about the futures we hold, Show producer Stuart Candy recommended an exercise from the late Elise Boulding. It's called the 200-year present. Clayton, I'm going to ask you to stretch back into the youngest age you can remember. Think about the oldest person who held you. Yeah, that would have to be my, like, great-grandfather, um, like, great-great-grandfather, George uh, Nicholas, who I'm namesaked after. He held me when I was a baby. It's quite significant, actually, because, you know, he told my uh, grandmother, the mother of my mother, like when she was just a little girl, she wouldn't receive his bundle, his sacred bundle, which is like, you know, your pipe and your drum and your rattles and sacred objects that you use for ceremony. And he said, you know, you're, you're going to go through a hard time, my girl, and all your brothers and sisters are going to, you know, die horrible deaths and uh, your kids are going to have a hard time. And he said, but your kids, children, we'll pick this up again. And so I was the first person since my great, great grandfather to, um, you know, start going to ceremonies and Sundance and sweat lodge are a very big part of that. Trying to learn the language and, you know, raise my kids in a traditional way. Yeah. That was the, the oldest person that held me, but he held me. Apparently he lived till I was born and, you know, I met him and then he died. You know, like your ancestors are always standing behind you and always pushing and guiding you, uh, you know, forward. Thanks for sharing, Clayton. It's really powerful to hear about your experience with your great-great-grandfather and how much hope for the future he had in you. I'd like to invite you to think about the youngest person you know today. Well, I'd probably have to say my uh, my niece, Daryl, and, you know, my, my sister, Star, has beautiful, beautiful children, but her youngest is just a toddler right now. And, and just like this brown little fireball. And, 
and uh she's quite the uh she's quite the force of nature and uh yeah i i really enjoy my time with her she's very special yeah she sounds awesome and thinking about the future that Darylin's inheriting what do you think it's going to look like it's pretty wild you know as native people you know we're always fighting for sovereignty and self-determination and the ability just to have control over our land you know and our resources you know the whole reason native people are the poorest and represent every negative statistic in Canada is because we don't have control over our land there's a lot to unpack here Settler colonial violence has existed since first contact and continues to have devastating intergenerational impacts on First Nations, Métis, and Inuit communities. All non-Indigenous people, myself included, living on Indigenous lands across this nation are settlers. It's not about our ancestors. We're contemporary actors in an ongoing history of violence, theft, and colonization. We're living on stolen land. The late Arthur Manuel talked about that. He said that we have less than one percent of our land base and that's why we cry on the shoulder of the person who stole our land you know and we got to stop doing that i think that darylin's going to be okay and i think you know my own sons and all of my nephews and nieces are going to be okay but i think that they're going to face things that most people that are living now can't even imagine yeah i'm curious to hear what signals of change you're paying attention to when i think back to this last september 27th and a million children hitting the streets to protest for Fridays for Future. That was when Greta uh, Thunberg was in the country. You know, I went and marched with my sons, you know, on that march. 20,000 kids marched here in Winnipeg. Months later, you know, like during the quarantine, the Black Lives Matter mobilization happened. And same thing, you know, all these young people. And, and they weren't, you know, they were saying Black Lives Matter, well, at the same time saying land back for Indigenous peoples, you know, while at the same time, like, demanding Black, trans, gay, lesbian, that they're safe, you know what I mean? And, like, just this, like, really powerful, like, intersectional analysis in all of these young children. So I know that we're on the right track, and the world might be pretty freaking wild 60 years from now for Daryl Lynn, but I also know that, like, this new generation of young people are responding to things that for decades and decades and decades, the white decision makers in power have just not given a shit about. And that's changing. I think it'll be like pretty crazy. I think we're about to beat the fossil fuel sector. But I also know that, you know, there's a new war that's coming up and a lot of the infrastructure from a social movement perspective that we've built to defeat the fossil fuel barons will just switch over for the new fight, which is going to be about water. Yeah, Darylin will be uh, out there on the front line, you know, shouting water is life, you know, against uh, water uh, privatization companies. <laughs> Despite the fact that Canada has the world's third largest per capita freshwater reserve, our long-term water security is in a precarious position. Fossil fuel projects continue to threaten the health of rivers and lakes, and pressure to privatize water sources and treatment could spell trouble. As of December 2020, there are still 40 First Nations communities across Canada that are struggling with long-term drinking water advisories. As a climate action organizer, how has the landscape changed in your lifetime? You know, I've been an activist and been fighting against the fossil fuel sector for 20 years now, fighting against settler colonial governments like the Canadian government, the U.S. government, others as well. 
in unity with other Indigenous peoples across the planet. I guess one of the things that blows me away is I remember I was like a really influential activist in the 90s here in Manitoba, where I live in Winnipeg, because I had the most comprehensive facts blast list. You know, I had the facts list that had all the chiefs, like main offices in all of Canada, and the national chief, and all the ministers, and every media outlet. This is before cell phones, you know, and I remember signing up for my first hotmail in 1995. My first email was like to Shell. They had murdered Ken Sarawiwa, you know, this famous poet from Nigeria. He was an indigenous man from the, I believe, from the Nigerian Delta. They murdered him for standing up against big oil. And I, and I sent them, you know, an email from my hotmail. It was a big deal. I never got a response. But the point is, is I lived through the transition from analog to digital. And I remember talking to, you know, other young people about the fact that, like, information was going to become the most valuable thing. You know, the digitalization of information was going to change the world fundamentally. And I didn't know what I was really talking about at that point, but I knew something was coming. And and so through my life, I, I saw this, like, huge shift. You know, to quote Van Jones, Van talks about the fact that, you know, we have more power in our cell phones, more computing power than the computers they used to send, you know, the mission to, to the moon. We have more computing power in our iPhones than those computers. We're in this crazy situation right now where, you know, because of the connectivity of uh, our smartphones and you know, I've got 50,000 people I can communicate to through my social media platforms on a daily basis. And, you know, we just saw one native guy whose car broke down on social media the other day. He had to skateboard to work on his longboard. And he like, you know, made a meme where he was drinking ocean spray. And that's been viewed 40 million times now. So there's this like connectivity that's happening right now, which I believe will tip us into the right choice you know and i think it's the young people that are going to take us there that's the prophecy and so the future you know and the values that i see that are coming up with this potential future it all comes down to connectivity you know community but not just like you know your family and your friends i think that indigenous peoples have had a lot to share with the world over the years about this topic you know the fact of the matter is is that capitalism and the sickness of greed that plagues humankind right now is fundamentally like rooted in the fact that we've been disconnected from nature. We've been disconnected from the circle of life that we call home, the place wherever creator put us. The only cure and the only way for people to like, you know, move forward in a way that doesn't continue this pattern of feeling this emptiness inside that nature used to fill with consumerism is by reconnecting to nature. In addition to the indigenous concept of interconnectedness that Clayton shared, there have been over a hundred studies that back up the benefits of being in nature, living near nature, or even viewing nature in paintings and videos. Viewing nature tends to trigger positive emotions, reduce stress, and calm our nervous systems. It can also shift our sense of self, diminishing the boundaries between self and others. One study, participants who spent a minute looking up into eucalyptus trees reported feeling less entitled and self-important. Even just viewing planet Earth for five minutes led participants to report a greater sense that their concerns were insignificant 
and that they themselves were part of something larger compared with groups who had watched neutral or funny clips. Yet, our busy, connected lifestyles often lead to spending less time outdoors. You know, and they say it right in the Paris Climate Accord, the biggest gathering of bureaucrats and decision makers in the history of the human race, you know. And uh, right in the preamble, it says that we recognize the vital and critical role of Indigenous people's traditional knowledge in mitigating and adapting to climate change. And, you know, there's only about 360 million Indigenous peoples on the planet, but those people represent like 85% of the world's cultural diversity, of the world's languages spoke. And what you have to understand is that Indigenous people's languages are, are what linguists refer to as polyamorphic. They're unwritten, they're oral. Our histories, our culture, our, our, everything lives in our language. And that's why we tell stories and we sing songs and we have ritual and ceremony and different ways to teach our children about the circle of life and about our sacred responsibilities within that circle of life. It's also quite interesting when you think about that because... Anytime an Indigenous language is lost, Westerners need to think about it as equivalent to the burning of the libraries of Alexandria. We lose a unique set of thousands of years of observation of that particular ecosystem and thousands of years of know-how on how to manage and protect that ecosystem, because that's our responsibility as members of the Five-Fingered Nation. Native people, wherever we are, including here in Canada, we also happen to live in the last remaining places where there's abundant biodiversity. 86% of the world's remaining biodiversity is Indigenous people's lands. Biodiversity and cultural diversity are inextricably linked. And Native people represent a last stand, if you will, to protect not just humanity, but also the ones that can't speak for themselves. You know, the ones that swim, fly, and the ones that crawl underneath the earth and the ones that walk on the earth. And hearing you speak about the need to protect our animal relatives brings to mind that moment you spoke of when your great-grandfather passed on his sacred bundle to you. Just the weight of that moment, the weight of, you know, being trusted with the traditional knowledge and the responsibility to carry it forward. I've spent a good deal of my life training shit. It's been thousands of young people at this point using every every opportunity I can to, you know, get young people out into the bush and, you know, have an experience, get them into a sweat lodge, have a pipe ceremony, have a smudge, even just like offer a cigarette, you know, some tobacco and say a prayer. You know, there, 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 there seems to be a powerful, powerful reaction to the toxic double millennia, triple millennia old brain of, patriarchy and this imbalance between man and woman and everything in between and a lot of native people refer to it as the rise of the sacred feminine creative principle and for us you know like especially craze it's the women that used to make all the decisions it was the women there seems to be this like massive shift and i see it in the movement you know virtually every community that I've worked in from Alaska to the Gulf of Mexico and across Mother Earth in terms of supporting Native people to fight against the encroachment of the fossil fuel sector into our traditional homelands. It's all led by women, all grandmas and moms and aunties and like 
big sisters, you know what I mean? Calling the shots. And, and the men show up, you know, they do. But it's always the women that carry everything. You know, there's this like profound shift in consciousness that is like occurring. And it's not everywhere. People are at different stages, different phases. But there's something really profound happening. And the young people are really tuned into it. Yeah. And I can't help but wonder, I mean, you've been a leading organizer for campaigns like Idle No More, the Indigenous Tar Sands campaign of the Polaris Institute. Yeah, you're a central figure in the climate justice and Indigenous rights movements across Canada. So what have these profound shifts in the movement felt like for you on a personal level? I've always like been out there in the front line and the very public life. As I get older, just taking up full on stop and stepping back all these powerful women that are stepping forward and it's intergenerational it's like grandmas and like you know young girls and moms and it's been really interesting to like go through this like like almost a humbling process you know what i mean i don't need to speak as much i can take a step back if there's nobody there i can step forward and like make sure that the message gets out I just have faith that things are going to be really okay because there's some powerful, powerful women that are stepping up, and, you know, and, and they're backed up by like hard ass, uh, you know, organizers and warriors, you know, like myself and the people that I have in my circle, you know, and, and we won't stop like ever. <laughs> I know that that indigenous knowledge is not enough on its own to stop everything that's happening and turn it around and make it right. But I know that there's some kind of hybrid, like, you know, sharing of knowledge and some kind of like bioregionally planned systems of design that are going to emerge that lift up community self-determination as the true solution to climate change. For those that might not be familiar, self-determination was codified by the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Through self-determination, Indigenous communities have the right to freely determine their political status, freely pursue their economic, social, and cultural development, and this is inclusive of an understanding of the past, present, and future of those communities. I think that the future, you know, it's going to look different in different regions, but I do believe that the future will be successful if communities connect to their, their bioregion and plan their city development, their food security and water and sanitation systems and energy systems and their agriculture systems in a way that cements their place within the circle of life within that system, not above it, dominating and controlling it, but as a part of it. That's what's going to solve a lot of the problems that we're dealing with right now. But, you know, people are, are realizing that capitalism is fundamentally like at the root of all of our problems and that things like the tar sands and pipelines and police violence, you know, against people of color and indigenous peoples and, you know, all these, you know, murdered and missing indigenous women and girls, you know, these are all symptoms of the actual problem, which is like predatorial capitalism. And I feel that, 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 you know, because of the nature of, of leadership that's emerged in the movement, this like rise of the sacred feminine creative principle that maybe, you know, just maybe, right now during this like like whirlwind storming moment that we might be able to like actually push through like a new economic paradigm we might be able to shift the overton window of what's possible you know we might just build an economy 
you know, some people are referring to it as a, a Green New Deal. Uh, some people are calling it a just recovery. Some people are calling it the smashing of capitalism and patriarchy and the rise of a new economic paradigm. Like there's a lot of different perspectives on what, what's possible right now. But I feel like we're all headed in the same direction. Clayton, thank you so much for sharing your time, your talents, and your energy with us today. It's so inspiring to hear about this shift in consciousness that's happening with our youth and the rise of the sacred feminine creative principle and how these young women are stepping in to lead. I guess I just really appreciate this opportunity to be a part of this podcast, you know, talk about the future because that's been like my whole obsession, trying to make sure that I'm healthy, that I can be a good father to my sons, that I can be a good son to, you know, my mother and grandson to my grandmother and bring forward a type of thinking and planning into the world that is is uniquely indigenous people often in canada you know they they hear the creed teaching that you know oh we think seven generations ahead but that's not actually accurate we think in seven generations we plan and think in seven generations but it's not seven generations ahead every decision that we make takes into consideration the three generations before us the current generation that we're living in, the now, and three generations ahead. And so it's this idea of learning from our past, preparing in our present to defend the future. And, you know, if the rest of the world could start thinking that way, then, you know, instead of in quarterly, like, profit margins, you know, then we're going to be okay. I love what you just shared there really grounding our listeners in the role of long-term thinking in Indigenous communities. A good friend of mine, you know, said that maybe she was quoting Octavia Butler. Adrian Marie Brown is her name. She's just this dynamic author and trainer and facilitator and leader. And You know, she wrote a bunch of incredible books about the movement, you know, the main one being Emergent Strategy. You know, people should check that book out. But basically, you know, she said that campaigners are the ultimate science fiction authors. You know, because like our job is to always think about a better world, to think about the future and what's possible. You know, so I spent a lot of time thinking about the future and how are we going to like defeat what is, you know, some of the most powerful entities that have ever existed on the planet. You know, all the biggest companies in the world. In my time in thinking about defeating uh, coal and oil and gas companies and, you know, nuclear and mega hydro, just all of these centralized systems of dominance and control and profit, you know, at the expense of frontline communities and at the expense of poor people who have to choose between paying rent or their, their hydro bill or, or grocery bill. I've thought a lot about the future and I think there's lots of good work out there and you know people if they want to get involved in connecting the dots and helping our society stop sacrificing certain communities at the altar of irresponsible economic policies and you know build a much better future for our kids well you know now's the time to put our hearts minds and uh, you know spirits together and see what we can do. Clayton, before I let you go, I wanted to invite you to share a bit more about what you're working on so our listeners can tune in. You know, one of the big writing projects that I just completed is a book called Life in the City of Dirty Water. It's about growing up here in Winnipeg 
you know, and being native. And next year, COVID willing, you know, it drops on September uh, 2021 with Penguin Publishing. And I'm going to do a big tour, you know, with the book. I have this whole stage performance I do with singing and reading from the book. And I've got vignettes from the film. And it's this whole kind of multimedia, like transmedia performance that I do with the book. But the idea behind the whole thing was really asking the question, you know, what does it take, you know, for Indigenous men to heal from the, the violence of colonialism? I was really struck by, you know, as my sons, you know, Felix and Jackson were, were getting older from babies to young children. I found myself disassociating and having a really hard time, like doing simplest of tasks, like playing with them or doing homework. I talked to my therapist about it and he's like, oh, yeah, no, like, you know, as your kids grow older, you'll see yourself and remember all the things you went through at that specific age that your kids are at. And I grew up in the 80s, the 70s and the 80s. And, you know, there was a different world back then. It was very violent, a lot of domestic violence and just crazy shit went down growing up. And so, you know, I was like, well, what do I do? How do I heal from this? And he's like, I don't know, write about it. (laughs) And I was like, okay. So I, you know, I started this project, Life in the City of Dirty Water. It's this whole transmedia, three-dimensional storytelling universe that poses this question. What does it actually take to heal from from colonialism, you know, and it wasn't an easy task. It was really difficult, but I did it, you know, and I'm still going through it. Clayton's also in the process of writing a badass sci-fi book called Manitowabe 2100. So this story, you know, is about what Canada is going to be by 2100, you know, just under 100 years, 80 years from now. You know, the whole premise of the story is that the natives have won. You know, Canada lost. And um, the way, you know, the way the natives won, you know, wasn't, you know, you have to ask yourself the question, did they win? Or is this just a a, a re-manifestation of colonialism in a neo-form? In addition to Clayton's writing, He's also been on the board of the Bioneers for the last 20 years. We produced the largest like environmental conference in the United States. It's been a big part of my life. And, you know, the conferences in Marin, California, and, you know, the work of the Bioneers is something that everybody should check out, you know, Bioneers.org. Yeah, Bioneers is a super cool organization. And what about your team at 350? We've got like a really, really critical campaign that we're fighting right now. You know, we already won this campaign. You know, the Trans Mountain Pipeline in British Columbia will greatly expand the Alberta tar sands at a time when we need to be, you know, shutting down our reliance on fossil fuel and transitioning to a Green New Deal, you know, an economy that leaves no worker behind, that's in full partnership with Indigenous peoples, taking reconciliation a step forward to land back. There's a million jobs that we can create that allow for, you know, workers to stay home in their territory, close to their families. Tens of thousands of workers that go and fly to the Alberta tar sands, you know, many from the maritime provinces, you know, it's unsustainable, you know, and it really affects not just the climate, but it affects families, the fabric of communities. You know, what we're trying to do is to stand in solidarity with First Nations that are fighting against this proposed Trans Mountain Pipeline, which would open up the tar sands to uh, Asian markets. You know, but the economics don't add up. Oil is in decline. The world is changing. Fossil fuel companies are 
becoming junk bonds. You know, Exxon was once the biggest company on earth and has been kicked off of stock exchanges, you know, as a junk bond. We got a campaign called Defund TMX because after we beat Kinder Morgan and sent them back to Texas with their tail between the legs, Justin Trudeau turned around and bought the pipeline with taxpayers' dollars and nationalized the project. You know, we, we expect the pipeline will cost well over $20 billion with all the COVID stuff and everything. You know, this is money that could be going into social programs, into, you know, healthcare, into education. You know, there's so many things that this type of money that is subsidizing big oil could go towards, you know, fixing the boil water advisory crisis on First Nations. You know, I'm also involved with a group called the Indigenous Climate Action, which is the first Indigenous, uh, you know, climate justice organization to exist here in Canada. They're headed under the leadership of my good friend, Ariel Deranger. Their organization is doing profound work, you know, organizing with Native communities to find you know, indigenous solutions to the global climate crisis. And um, I think people should check them out as well. That's all for today's episode of Take Me to Your Future. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Clayton Thomas Mueller for sharing his perspective with us. To hear more scenarios like this, subscribe to Take Me to Your Future wherever you get podcasts so you never miss an episode. Do you have any interesting ideas about the future or know a future thinker that we should have on our show? Reach out to us at takemetoyourfuture at gmail.com. Catch you next time.